Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done, and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. Yeah, what does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment, before the monsters came, Humanoids from the Deep Dive. Welcome to the podcast Humanoids from the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode we'll see guests and myself give our take on an important movie monster and or film, and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore. Today's episode we will be covering the Paul Morrissey slash Andy Warhol puts his name over everything cult classics Flesh for Frankenstein, and Blood for Dracula. Fans of the show can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, basically every civilized location where you can find a podcast these days, and also on Twitter at HFT Deep Dive. I'm your host, Jeff Ewing. I'm an entertainment contributor for Forbes and Looper, uh, with bylines all over the place, and I've written and, and edited books on Alien and Stranger Things, Frankenstein, Hell, the Devil, you name it. If it's about monsters i'm obsessed with it and uh i'm really pleased to introduce our excellent co-host for today's episode andre couture is uh, the editor and a co-host of this fine establishment and mike vaughn is the founder and basically the the number one stunner of the film review and interview website the video attic Thank you both for stopping by again to, to chat these lovely movies with us. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, uh, for the folks at home, this is wonderful because this is actually a, a set of films that, that Mike really loves. And so he pitched the episode. This is a, you know, important to the hearts of the humanoids. I think the best way to do this is to maybe start with Flesh for Frankenstein as the first. They were they yeah. were filmed in close succession. Yeah. So we yep. can start with Flesh for Frankenstein, move on to Blood for Dracula, and then get a little bit bigger with it uh baron frankenstein played by udo kier is obsessed with making a male and female creation out of dead bodies in order to create a master race meanwhile a farmhand named nicholas becomes the butler for the baron's household as well as the baron's sister baroness frankenstein's lover class politics and gory surgery frame this retelling of mary shelley's frankenstein that's perfect yeah, I, I, you know, it, it's funny because I came to these films a little bit, you know, new, a little bit fresh. I hadn't seen them before. They're really interesting <laughs> in so many ways, and they're a trip. And Udo Kier is is amazing as always. Uh, I won't uh, steal anybody's thunder anymore though, because I'll, I'll get to talk about it in the review section. But let's first kind of dig into our our sort of takes and give our out of five reviews as always. Mike, this being your your brainchild, would you like to go first? Out of the two, I think uh, Flesh for Frankenstein, I've probably watched um, a little less than Blood for Dracula, but still, it's such a great movie. Um, it's so outrageous, and I think it's gory, but it also has a lot of really interesting themes um, about, like, class and, you know, the, um, like, motifs of, like, obsession and beauty and kind of framing Frankenstein in this kind of weird master race context, I think, puts in a really interesting spin on the material. So 
Uh, and then you also get, you know, wonderful lines like to know death auto, you have to fuck life in the gallbladder. And, <laughs> you know, who doesn't like something like that? Right. So, yeah, it's pretty universal. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> I heard yeah. it, I was like, you know what? That speaks to me on a deep level. <laughs> yeah. So we're right around the gallbladder. I mean, listen, I mean, you <laughs> That's have what it's for. You have yeah. like those like really cheesy, like live, laugh, love uh, things. We need something <laughs> for this. That's what that on my door, my front door. <laughs> oh, my God. I would love it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. So so did you say out of five, how many you'd give it? Um, I would probably say like a four and a half out of five. Um, wow. Okay. I, I don't know if it's just because I revisited Blood for Dracula more. I feel like that one I feel like is a little more um, like thematically interesting. Although, like I said, Flesh for Frankenstein is, is like also very nearly up there too. So, I mean... Both kind of neck and neck, but um, yeah, I mean, I still love Plus for Frankenstein. It's such a outrageous, strange. Um, it's almost like if you gave Fassbender and John Waters <laughs> a project to work on together, it would be even stranger than what you would imagine. Yeah, I would say if you stitched them together. <laughs> ah. You're like, oh, you're like too soon. Uh, what about you, Andre? What are your thoughts on the film? Well, uh, so I'm c- coming from the other side of this. So th- these films are pretty new to me, but I have definitely enjoyed flesh for frankenstein more of the two and i think i've uh, watched it a little bit more in the short period of time more than blood for dracula my rating is almost as high as mike's but it, it comes with a sort of a caveat where there's a lot of things that transpire through flesh and also through in in blood uh which we'll get into but there's a sort of detached reality to the whole thing mm-hmm. and it's really it's kind of jarring at first but like when i got used to it I was sort of like cognizant of there being a sort of uh, a virtual, like mental stage that this movie is being played on, mm-hmm. and then from there, I was able to take a step back and the knowledge that this is—I mean, obviously, it's a Frankenstein movie, so it's not real or grounded in any sense. Yeah. So, uh, th- that being said, I I would give this a four out of five, just a f- solid four. Mm-hmm. There's something about the scope that just feels very operatic the -hmm. tragedy and like the intended romance that never pans out Mm -hmm. because the characters who need to know what's happening don't know Mm -hmm. that's perfect i appreciate that andrea thank you so much it's so uh, interesting to me that that you mentioned the 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 scale being kind of operatic because i guess i'll start out my comments by saying so Traditionally, Dr. Frankenstein's plans always involve having control over life over death or or some variation on that for, for a, like a different reason, perhaps. But that's generally obviously the crux of his plan. But in this one, it's actually a little bit different because he seems pretty confident in that sort of thing. His idea is to create a pair that can breed an army for him. <laughs> like, yeah, it's kind of like taking Bride and then just like turning it up to insane Nazi scientist levels, yeah, kind of thing. But he's doing it for fun ish. Yeah, exactly. I I do like the grandiosity as well of of the, the the villainous plan and how ironically it doesn't pan out in the way that he intends. I'd say it, it's beautifully shot. It's a lovely film. I enjoy Udo Kier's over-the-top performance, <laughs> to put it very mildly. I would say the the biggest, other than some of the... Um, it, well, okay, 
so before I go into the things that, that I criticize, I find it very amusing that it is one of, it's definitely the horniest Frankenstein <laughs> film I've ever seen. Like every single frame is completely 100% saturated with horniness. It's ridiculous. Uh, so that's fun. But on the other hand, there's, you know, Dr. Frankenstein goes, goes through some, um, he takes some measures and has some stances, one of which has already been quoted to you that I find questionable from a modern lens and we can dig into that but then i also uh i'd ultimately rate it maybe with with andre four out of five mm-hmm. the thing that dings it for me are a combination of that and i know it's kind of a, a dark comedy in, in a way and it doesn't take itself a hundred percent seriously but there's you know writing and we can get into why that in some sections i find really just hard to listen to because it's bad so I can't really give it more than a four to five, but it's fun. So, you know, it still gets a four. Okay. We can be friends still. <laughs> yeah. Still gets a four. <laughs> it's a weird way for a podcast to break up, but what are you going to do? Well, you know, uh, but you know what, what's so interesting and, um, you know, I have this in my notes and I love that Andre already kind of, um, said this, but. There is something so unreal and surreal about it that it takes you a little bit, like Andre said, to kind of acclimate to this. But um, once you do, I think it's such an interesting kind of way to like kind of like lens and frame this uh, film where, I mean, you have like things like you have like anachronistic things like Joe D'Alessandro talks with like a, a thick Brooklyn accent. But who cares? Yeah. You know, um, mm-hmm. I, I think, I mean, we'll get, we'll get into this more um, for Blood for Dracula, but like, you know, they make a point in Blood for Dracula to, to like mention like he's like second or third generation from that country, but yet he still has a Brooklyn accent. And mm-hmm. um, I, I, Andre, I know you listened to the commentary. I think it also kind of mentions that like Paul supposedly did that on purpose. I, I think he like. Paul just mostly wanted him to come in and just act as he would naturally and not, like, do a dialect or anything. And even from watching the movies, you can tell Udo also didn't put on a dialect because he was straight up uh, speaking from his very heavily accented uh, broken English. So everyone is sort of coming into as they are. Like, the only facet of the character is, other than what they're wearing and what they're doing, and how they look, you know, th- just the the physical, visual mise-en-scene. There's also a sort of, like, laxness about making your voice fit the character, which I mm-hmm. think is part of the, the detachment that I, I was mentioning before, where just, like, there are some characters that... Joe, for example, with this Brooklyn accent, it's just so out of place, but, like, it works in a really weird way yeah. to sort of, like, act as that satirical tool this isn't a retelling of frankenstein where you would you could compare it to like the james whale or a hammer uh version so it's something that i think will sort of shape an audience's expectations without doing anything really different from there yeah because i'd say like and we'll get into blood for dracula a little bit later but both films and they were they were filmed you know really close together you know, they, they really showcase the filmmaker's thematic preoccupations, really, through which he kind of, like, hammer these gothic tales to meet those goals rather than to try and take the original material mm-hmm. and handle the yeah. original material's themes. You know, like, he has his own 
filmmaker's agenda and so like this becomes a very different type of telling of these stories yeah like i like how i mean this is this is like themes that are like prevalent in both films but like he has this really interesting and this is where it was like fun to revisit like the commentaries because they really touch upon these but like hall's like obsession with like class and you know the upper class are like these the villains they're almost like not almost like they are like just grotesque caricatures of um the most loathsome creatures i mean like leeching off the um you know lower class he like literally leeches just leeches off them and like for the most part the lower class um, seems to be like the the virtuous people in the story they're like the yeah definitely Mm -hmm. yeah and i would say that that's that sort of part of the theme is fairly common to a lot of modern retellings of this story where where especially ones that are more horror oriented where it seems pretty obvious where you know frank and dr frankenstein's getting his parts and that he's a sort of predatory element and i i like that that's very clear here yeah the beginning third or so is when the Baron, Baron Frankenstein, and his uh, servant Otto, they are on the lookout for certain b- body parts, uh, famously called Zanazen in the, in the first one. Um, he, uh, so Frankenstein is able to make these like straight-up judgment calls on like where they're going to find this body part. Like, we need a beautiful nose, so... Like, it's got to be a prostitute, and this is where they hang out. I know of such a place because no other normal, self-respecting human being would ever go here. I know a place. But you, you don't question, like, well, why do you know where it is? <laughs> You're like, hey, um, okay, so doctor, let's, yeah. let's chat for a second. <laughs> and, like, no one can check him, like, not even Otto, because, like, Otto is pretty much, like, his uh, near-silent work slave. He's just not really... He doesn't have his own agency to, yeah, like uh, approve or deny something of his own abilities. I mean, like the the kind yeah. of like I don't know if this is maybe jumping ahead, but like the thing with Otto kind of like abs- asserting himself at the end, I thought was kind of wild and interesting and upsetting mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah, I think I would attribute that to an uncontrollable angst that you can't pull back once you realize what you've done. Yeah, we're like, like, oh, well, now that the cat's out of the bag. Yeah, it doesn't only happen once either. There's a, uh, there's multiple instances where Otto definitely goes a little too far. Yeah. Um. What did what you all think about like the um just like the gore and stuff in this? I mean, not that like you know, obviously we get into like the deeper thematics and stuff, but I mean, this this movie really f- like swings for the fences. Um. Because I guess it was originally mm-hmm. it um, 3D, so like you have yeah. stuff pointed at the camera. I'm uh, I, I really really <laughs> like the the hokey gore elements where you know even without the 3D effect, it's still kind of funny. And they're just like, here, look at this, and then it's just like this fleshy bit that's just like right front center of the of the camera. And like I I kind of wish that I was able to watch the 3D version just to see like what sort of effect they were going for. I mean, yeah. it's it's not hard to imagine that, but it's it's different when you are actually watching the intended version. 
Yeah. I thought it was, you know, I, I feel like the, the gore was largely pretty effective because the dismemberments were the least believable, but they're very 70s and it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty well executed for its day. Uh, I'm not watching it right now, but from memory, it, it, it was pretty clear to me they're using like legitimate organs. So there was a lot yeah. of realism yeah. there. It did give me um, some Herschel Gordon Lewis vibes, but <laughs> yeah. like the the blood color wasn't as ridiculous. It could have been the film stock that they were filming on, but... Um, because I know that, just going over to Herschel Gordon-Lewis for a second, he had, like, his own preferred brand and, like, mixture of, like, blood that he used for film. And, like, I don't know what he did with, with like, the gore or body parts or whatever, but uh, it was fairly similar to what uh, Morrissey did here. And I'm not sure how much of that was Morrissey's decision or if it was just, we have this, let's go get these, and we'll just use it in the shot. We'll just make it work, rather than, like, continuously shaping it and trying to make it look as good as it possibly can on camera i feel like it definitely um had a lot of realism for what was it 73 yeah yeah like and so for its day despite you know the limitations of what they had it was it was fairly accomplished on a technical level yeah it's um andre made such a good observation where it looks like very like hg lewis kind of hokey but then there's something kind of just i mean again i think that um adds to like this kind of unreality reality to it where everything's just a little bit off and again i feel like that helps the film and not necessarily hurts it because it already kind of establishes this like just really strange tone so i feel like that further just like heightens that i think it's important to keep in mind too that like they weren't going for a hundred percent steadfast seriousness and that wasn't the goal in the commentaries like they were like yeah these are like a hundred percent um comedies these were not meant to be like serious works of art i mean they took it seriously but like they it was always like tongue firmly planted in cheek yeah i think the other things like so as far as like themes go i think it's also really interesting that beauty and obsession with beauty and perfection is definitely like a um, major theme and through line which again I think is so interesting um, as far as like when you mix um, creating the quote-unquote perfect being and then mixing that with like this upper-class picturesque virtuous uh, life but you know when you actually like are looking in it's very grotesque Paul like makes it um, very clear that like the upper class are are these kind of grotesque beings i mean not even really human there's there's definitely this ideal image of eugenics to create the model specimens but then his ultimate goal is for them the two zombies as they're called to copulate and then create children of their own that he immediately assumes is going to be infinitesimally superior to the normal human race but only because he created them and it's interesting too because like he's so obsessed with their beauty he's so obsessed with control but he doesn't manage to retain control over the male frankenstein no and i think this is something that's really interesting to me that that stems from the original source material too because you have in the creation of the frankenstein's monster there's throwaway dialogue that it's basically like talks about the recipe they used to make him and they they explicitly say that oh well we gave him the brain of a criminal right yeah and that's probably just like old school parlance to explain why he was violent or why he made mistakes or what have you but in but in actual filming the monster's treated with a lot of sympathy which is how he is in the novel as well 
So like a criminal's brain is more referencing their perception of how things would be rather than how it's treated. And so they don't have that control, etc., that they intended to. And I like that that carries over into the plotting of this one. When they branded this the brain of a criminal, like, well, what did that criminal do? Did he kill 40 people or did he steal a loaf of bread? Yeah, like, was he hungry? Like Universal, we need a prequel movie of the brain of Frankenstein when he was a criminal. So we can have a sort of like Joker Cruella device. I'm going to say that's objectively correct, and that's exactly what's needed. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Yeah. Like, I it's it's interesting because I've I've probably seen like you know that version of Frankenstein maybe like 20 times, and it's always like, yep. um, yeah, it's a criminal brain, but like, is it a violent crime? I mean, I kind of always just assumed like, yeah. I don't know, like I guess it was, but I don't know. I think another thing that's really interesting is like the Paul like kind of loves to do this like bitter irony with um the body that they choose ends up being maybe what we would call asexual now he's not interested in having relations with the yeah. you know female or does it, it i guess it seems to imply like he's just is not interested in sex period uh, of like a lottery odds of picking like the one person that yeah i mean he just happened to be on the grounds so <laughs> he just like cuts off his head and like he has no idea what uh, this person's preferred path in life was right. And, like a, a lot of this process for Baron Frankenstein would have probably been easily achieved to create his super race if he just held like just interviews, like a <laughs> like job interviews, like yeah. a competition. It's like so. So tell me why we should harvest your body parts. <laughs> yeah, like like world like a like here's a new game show. World's horniest Victorian. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's yeah, that's the thing because I yeah, like because he keeps trying to coax them into having sex, and Frankenstein just like barely even says anything to him ever. Like the old, the mm-hmm. like most, he basically just ignores him and looks disinterested the entire time. I mean, I think this is an interesting segue too into like the other major theme, which is like sexual repression and sexuality. And I, I think it's interesting with this movie and with Blood for Dracula, there seems to be, like, Paul seems to have this definite Victorian kind of ethos uh, on, like, if someone's very promiscuous and sexual, like, you know, the Baroness is just, you know, she's a sexual being. But, you know, she literally yeah. gets crushed to death by her lover. I mean, it's not, it's, these movies yeah. are not subtle. <laughs> if you haven't noticed, no, you know. No. And then, of course, in Blood for Dracula, like, like, literally, you know, he's like, he's literally says, the blood of these whores are killing me. Again, mm-hmm. not subtle. <laughs> you know? I thought it was very nuanced. Yeah. So I don't, I'm, you know, I'm not like saying that I know this for a fact, but, um, like, I've heard that, like, Paul is, a little bit more on the conservative side, which is interesting since he kind of started out in the factory, which is like the most unconservative um, place in the world, probably. But I mean, if that is the case, you can kind of see them um, in these two films, which is interesting because it, mm-hmm. it kind of it, it's a juxtaposition of like conservative messages. But then it's like there's so much sex and gore on top of that. So it's kind of. A weird mixture <laughs> yeah like everybody is absurdly horny all the time yeah but then you must yeah. but then you must pay for that though in some way right what i found interesting was uh so Mar- morrissey says himself that um 
when he was making these, he had he was of the opinion that a character's uh, sexuality just has absolutely no bearing on like the content of their character and their ultimate being, and that's why he he went for the absurd in terms of uh, showing these characters like indulging in their sexual appetites and just showing how they are behind closed doors versus when they're um, say like out in public conversing or trying to uh, convince someone to do something. I thought that was interesting since th there's a scene where the countess takes the kids out to like have a picnic. It's almost like a, a reversal of like a grotesque imagery of something that's private that is stumbled upon as a public act. They go up to the picnic and they drop their apples and it rolls down the hill revealing Joe. I don't know if he, I guess he's just like hanging out near the grounds. They stumble onto like definitely the most normal sexual appetite that is being satiated at that, at that point versus uh, what you get to see with the Countess and the Baron's preferred method of uh, getting it on. The armpits. So, yeah. <laughs> armpits and the gallbladder. There's some, See, again, there's something so John Waters-esque about the sex scenes. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, like, like, like there, there's a scene where Udukir climbs on top of, uh, you know, as Dr. Frankenstein, not the actor per se, but he climbs on top of, of the, the female Frankenstein corpse and he uh, commits an act of necrophilia with his hand in her the entire time. And he's like, Otto, what are you doing? You, you disgusting thing. Turn away. He's just like, he's casting that onto Otto as being, as, as if a voyeur is more reprehensible than the act that's being committed. Which is also another theme here I want to point out is voyeurism. Like, mm -hmm. the whole thing is like, we're, we're in on something. We're spying on this family just like the kids are after the first shot like there's um there's definitely even during like most of the sex scenes is how the voyeuristic view comes into play is there's some cutaways through mirrors yeah the kids are they have their own little holes scratched away in the mirror so they can watch like their mom have sex with whoever she wants to yeah also i think there's something so perfect about the, the casting of those children because they are they were like so creepy and unsettling without actually even yeah. trying trying to be like that that casting was like perfection yeah i mean it's kind of hard to make kids uh, creepy i mean we've, we've talked about this before and some people have different opinions and that's fine but i i always find it really difficult to believe that kids are ever represent this this odd actual threat and they don't really, they're not really threatening in the film, but they are unnerving the entire yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's interesting because, like, I guess we're doing spoilers because this gets a little spoilery. Um, yeah, I mean, these movies have been around for a while, but they're still not that easy to get a hold of. Well, yeah. okay, so I'll try not to, like, like, ruin it, but, like, I'll just say that, like, they kind of set up the kids as, like, helpful and then... Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are not. <laughs> the very first like segment of Flesh for Frankenstein has them uh, actually in the laboratory yeah. that that the Baron works in for most of the film, and then they're just sort of doing surgery on these uh, dolls that they have, and there's even like a little guillotine that they like put one of their rabbit or whatever doll it is head through, and then they just 
they cut its head off, and then they just, you know, exchange a glance and smile at each other, and then it cuts to the next scene. And it's just like, it's it's a fascinating way to start it off. It's, it's just family-friendly, really, because the families, you know, they come together as a unit. And, and again, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe if anyone doesn't want spoiled, skip a couple minutes ahead, but it's interesting how, you know, when Andre, Andre, you just said about how it opens with them doing like mock surgery. I mean, I think it beautifully bookends with them quite literally doing it for real. Um, Yeah, pretty much not, not play anymore. I'm just glad that back then, like apprenticeships actually led to something, you know, (laughs) (laughs) cause nowadays you have internships where you can spend, you know, like in what we do in the shadows, it's basically like an office, yeah, it's like 10 years and you don't even get anywhere. Exactly. It's like a supernatural, like, The Office about how much internships are useless. So um, <laughs> it's just nice here that they led to something, and I appreciate that. Um, but, like, the family dynamics are so weird, though, too, because I, his his wife is also his sister. his sister. Yep. And there's this line where he's like, my wife, my beautiful wife, mother of my children, my sister, my beautiful children, you killed her. <laughs> it's like, oh, my, it's so dramatic, yep. too. <laughs> and I was like, wow. On the plus side, like when it comes to like remembering birthdays and sending out cards and stuff, like he has a really easy job. Yeah. <laughs> he just has to remember one person. It's so absurd. It, it, it's just definitely like casts uh, a very odd light on both like sexual libertines in a way and on people that claim to be better than that, but they're really just hypocrites. Yeah. Like I think it's, it, it's like even more so it's kind of muddled in blood for Dracula, but like, um, you know, there seems to be this hard and fast rule of, I mean, maybe not necessarily like that, like sex is bad and unnatural, but like, you know, when it's, when it's like an upper class person, you know, they're so grotesque that they had to find bizarre ways of fulfilling that. And, um, it's definitely like, I don't know what you all think, but I feel like that both of these movies are a little more harder on upper class and a little more lower class is virtue, uh, more virtuous. I would say that's especially true of, of uh, blood for Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. The family aspect I think is strongest here where like, despite how affluent the Baron and the Countess are assumably uh, reputable, like we don't know because we don't really see any influence of Frankenstein outside uh, of his immediate world. Mm. So family in films usually is like, a supportive empowering force or like the complete opposite like you're fighting against yeah, them yeah but this one they're either the threat or the safe space yeah but what what flesh for frankenstein does a little bit differently and i think more interestingly with like even uh, a base incestuous relationship that seems to have no passion uh it, it's exactly that there's it completely lacks emotional support and it, it just feels like this pathetic void that no one is in a good place. They're all like sort of on the edge, just trying to claw their way out. And that I think that is most evident when we cut to the dinner table, which is like this mm. giant, long, almost middle ages style, huge table where Baron sits at one end, his wife, his sister, the countess sits on the other end. And they're about like, I don't know, maybe like 500 feet apart. And their kids are, right in the middle 
And that's exactly where the kids are. They're being dropped right in the, in the middle of this whole uh, situation against their will. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, it's it, it's like they make it very clear that, you know, how kind of cold and detached um, everybody is. And again, even like the uh, quote unquote sex scenes between the Baroness and the, um, you know, creature it's like there's no warmth there's no love there's no passion it's just almost like animal instincts there's you know yeah yeah well and you see like also in his interactions with his 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 wife slash sister uh that he gets jealous of her liaisons with someone else but he's not uh he's not warm he's not anything he doesn't exhibit any sort of love which is great because that'd be super gross but it's also interesting that they show it's like a classic almost uh monomaniacal like abusers type of love yeah. where it's not love yeah it's possession. She's, yeah i was gonna say that's exactly right like it's it's not you know he possesses her like he wants to possess like and create a literal race of people yeah, I was saying um, earlier, but like the, the cinematography in this is fantastic. And apologies because I'm gonna butcher this name, Luigi Caveller. Again, sorry, that's probably very wrong on how you say that. But but he did um, some really interesting stuff. He did um, Argento's Deep Red. He did Lucio Fulci's A Woman, uh, Lizard Out of Woman's Skin. Um, he did some pretty uh, interesting uh, Giallo's. Um, investigation of a mm-hmm. citizen above suspicion which i think arrow just put out oh yeah oh yeah mm-hmm. he shot both of these um flesh and blood for dracula and i mean just beautiful camera work he really gives like i mean the movie clearly is on a low budget but i think you know what saves it is the production design is so great his camera just is so expressive and interesting like it's really not like static i mean he really like it's like almost like hitchcock where he uses the camera to tell the story as much Mm -hmm. as like the script um he was also working with uh 3d as well so like they they couldn't really rely on a lot of close-ups uh i I remember udo saying that uh they were shooting in 3d and it was kind of a pain because you couldn't do <laughs> close-ups of like an actor's face because then while it would look good in two-dimensional uh, in 3d it would just look grotesque with like the nose popping out and like might be more like, frightening than the actual gore effects <laughs> that they did set up for the 3d shots <laughs> that's actually the entire reason why this is an audio podcast and i didn't yeah. my initial plan is to do it in 3d <laughs> and i decided against it no we all have our 3d cameras but we, we turned them off. Yeah, we spent so much money before the show even started, guys. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to see me in 3D, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that it, it's such an interesting, like like Andre, I was also listening to the commentary and, and taking some notes because it's been a while. And they were talking about like some of like the like God, the godlike perspectives on like some of the shots and just like yeah um the god's eye view yeah this is like it's not it's not a top-down bird's eye view but it's like a um it almost has a composition of those biblical uh frescoes like you know those Mm -hmm. paintings that depict like some large catastrophic event or the aftermath of yeah from like an inhuman perspective where it's where it's something that in its day no human could accomplish yeah and no no human would have that view because they would also right. be among the dead or uh what, what have you so like 
yeah, God's Eye View is uh, probably the best nomenclature for that. Yeah, and like I said, it's something that's like Hitchcock was kind of famous for doing, like these like overhead like God's Eye View of, of things, like kind of like most famously in The Birds when he does that big sweeping like yeah. post-apocalyptic. Want the line of gasoline? Yeah. That shot is um, awesome. But yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's just, I've got to give this movie so much credit, like both of them, for just looking absolutely gorgeous. Um, that's why I'm like, oh, we, we need uh, ultra HD versions of these. No, I mean, I, I feel like the, the cinematography probably added an entire star for me. Like, because it's just beautifully done. It's very technically accomplished. And I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with what they were able to do. It seems like this wasn't like done on a huge budget, but like a lot of the practical locations, like, especially for blood for Dracula with like the, um, like the interiors, it's never like, it's never easy to shoot inside like an actual practical location anyways. I mean, especially given like cameras back in the early seventies. So Mm -hmm. And their size and like changing reels. Yeah, I mean, was there even handheld cameras back then? I, I mean, uh, I don't think in the so. early seventies, no. Because like, I mean, there might have been handheld like Super Eights, maybe. Because I know, like, I know with like Halloween, it was like one of the first, maybe not the first, but like among the first to use like the handheld i thought that was um black christmas oh okay oh okay yeah yeah um in north america i I don't know about like italy where like flesh for frankenstein was shot but it it seemed these were all pretty if not static like mounted but yeah i i am not entirely sure on on that but i i feel like in north america at least the dp of black christmas made this whole rig of um that moment when the killer is climbing the trellis outside the, oh, yeah. the building it's a pov shot not, not to get too off topic but just a oh yeah no that's a good that's a good point yeah for sure um so any final thoughts on on flesh for frankenstein before we dig into blood for dracula yeah i just i guess i'll just uh, reiterate that i really like it it's um there are some uh parts that are uncomfortable to watch I mean, we'll get into that more in depth in Blood for Dracula, obviously. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, other than that, it's uh, a really interesting, weird, surreal, high energy movie. It's definitely not something. It's something that like you'll you you'll definitely come out of it feeling like some kind of way. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's about right. <laughs> okay, so Blood for Dracula. Mike, would you like to do the honors again? Okay, uh, a sickly Dracula, played by Udo Kier, and his assistant Anton venture into a small Italian village to seek out virgin blood. He finds his way to a home of a seemingly pure upper-class family. He soon discovers that the family is in fact on very hard times, and that some of the daughters might not be as pure as he assumed. Where do you, where well, okay so where to start with this one? <laughs> so this one was a completely different beast for me. I still have pretty much the same rating to give it, but I already have the prerequisite of Flesh for Frankenstein as a reference point going into this one. So it's very much more uh, about less things for me uh, than Frankenstein was. Uh, on the surface, you have the story of uh, Dracula coming through um, Italy specifically not just because they filmed there but apparently he needed to find foreign virgin blood to i think it it was either marrying or just straight up feeding off of their blood so he could survive 
Either way. Yeah, it's a little bit broad because he's, at this point, kind of sickly and dying. Yeah, I think he was probably shooting for, like, the highest target possible, but still willing to get whatever he can. It's a little less focused than Frankenstein in hindsight. So the journey that he goes through in this one, there's a lot of lot more broad strokes than there were uh, in Frankenstein, where there's a lot of different influences and inputs. But this one is mostly all instigated by Dracula, because you mm -hmm. follow him throughout the whole film, pretty much. Yeah. That being said, his, his characterization of Dracula is, I, I would say, more interesting than Frankenstein's. My, my rating will still be about a four out of five, just because his characterization, his like struggle is definitely more compelling than his immediate circumstances, mm -hmm. the setting, even like the, the classist tone that's set. Yeah. Okay. What about you, Mike? I echo a lot of what Andre said. I think that um, this one definitely is more compelling character wise, as far as like a uh, centralized, you know, character uh, with Dracula. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, I think it's beautifully shot. It does tend to seem a little more unfocused. Um, there's like some side things that don't really necessarily need to be there. Like they linger on some some threads that um, you could probably streamline. But yeah, it, it's just, I still think it's uh, rife with some really interesting, um, you know, themes and motifs. The, you know, Italian uh, landscape is just gorgeous. Um, like the interiors, mm -hmm. the cast is incredible, of course. You know, Joe D'Alessandro and Udo, just everybody's like just one fire here. You know, I would say my rating would probably be, even though I, I like this more um, than... Flush for Frankenstein, I say like there's a couple cringeworthy moments that maybe um, yeah I I rated a little bit lower, um, so I'll st I still give it like a solid four out of five. Okay, but yeah, good mm -hmm. family fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's solid. I appreciate your your thoughts on this as well. Me, it's uh, interesting because I so I personally find Flush for Frankenstein a little more memorable, minus the end of Blood for Dracula is very memorable. Mm -hmm. but okay so the, the good things that i liked uh again as you mentioned i love the cinematography i feel like udo kier puts in an interesting performance i love anton his manservant in this he has such a strong driving character kind of a jerk uh i just i like that characterization he has an interesting dynamic i like the sort of class politics that in invades the plotting of the story and i would say that i think overall even though it's not a perfect film and there are some cringeworthy moments and things that i would be like oh maybe we don't do that <laughs> I would say that I think the writing is overall better than in Flesh for Frankenstein. And mm -hmm. as a consequence, the performances I find a little bit better. Even So I'd say on balance between me finding Flesh for Frankenstein more memorable and me finding uh, Blood for Dracula more well executed as, as a script, I'd, I'd probably also rate it uh, four out of five, I would say. I think that like it's really interesting how again you know just like flesh for Frankenstein there's like this upper class lower class I think even more so in this one but it's like really weird because I mean Joe D'Alessandro's character is so repugnant in this and oh god yeah yeah Mar mm -hmm. as, as Mario yeah like he is like the worst and I don't I feel like he's not meant to be likable nope. but then it also kind of bucks up against this like you know, upper class bad, lower class good, because obviously he's not framed as good. He does right. a lot of horrendous things. I mean, 
you could argue he is more horrendous than Dracula himself, really. Mm-hmm. He's kind of the, the anti- he is kind of the villain of the thing. Um, yeah. But yet he's like kind of semi-framed as the hero, which is a little up- upsetting. And, and Well, yeah, I see that. Although, especially in the classist lens that this character and the direction of this film is demanding that we look through, we have to look at it that way, where uh, the traveling aristocrat coming in to supposedly save this family from uh, complete poverty because like yeah look at this giant mansion they have so close to poverty there he's like telling the audience pretty much in no indirect means that he is the lesser evil therefore Mm -hmm. he is the heroic force of the movie leading into the finale and that whole thing definitely but you know how did he get there well uh his argument of means to an end is very problematic, and I think that's the point of uh, mm-hmm. Mario's character being such a piece of shit, where um, he gets to do what he wants, but in the end, he saves the day. But we should be looking at the circumstances from which that happened, yeah. rather than just the end result. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, like, another thing I, th- I really think that's kind of a little bit more interesting about this is... Even though, you know, Dracula is, like, the villain, they kind of make him sympathetic at the end. Like, like I almost find, again, spoilers, you know, skip ahead a little bit, um, <laughs> but I'm going to talk about the ending. You know, I, I feel like it's kind of heartbreaking him, and I can't think of the older daughter that actually turned out to be, like, a virgin. Yeah, she, like, when he gets staked and she throws herself on him. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, I mean, it, you know, again, perfectly summed it up when you said operatic, because that yeah. scene is, like, operatic. And, I mean, it's heartbreaking. And, um, you know, like, I think it's interesting that, you know, his character's not a good guy, but not necessarily, like, a throthing-at-the-mouth bad guy either. Like, yeah. he has some, some, some... They make him pitiable, which I think is interesting. Yeah, he's kind of pathetic, actually. He's characterized as, yes, he, his existence is predatory, but also, like, he's sickly, and he's desperate, and he's on death's door if he doesn't work it out. Yeah. And that sort of goes with, like, with any sort of vampire. Yeah, they can be an apex predator, and they can be so much quicker to, uh, like, have you figured out. But if they don't keep up on their uh, on their blood consumption, they will be like this. And, like, this is him yeah. just having a really bad week because we never see him at his peak yeah yeah yep yeah exactly and i mean it's interesting because even from like the the very first scene where he's kind of you know doing the montage of like fixing his face and making himself you know look a little better i mean it's very it's very pitiable it really is i mean that's why i think it's it's so interesting like his character there's a little more to dig into i think than his um baron frankenstein um yeah yeah, and you know i think that the mom is maybe more predatorial than he is Mm -hmm. oh yeah she's adamant Mm -hmm. she's she wants that dracula money i'm fairly certain that like that whole story that he gives them is nothing but a ploy like he doesn't he might have you know like that title and this estate but nothing really beyond that like it would just it seems to me that this bright future that this family in italy is working towards is going to be nothing more but the exact same thing just in a different country and then now your daughter's a vampire see this would be interesting to hear what you guys think but 
I think even the daughters, even though they're a little bit predatory, you can't really blame them. I mean, that's kind of like what they've been kind of taught. I mean, they've almost been like indoctrinated to feel like that. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like they have some strange uh, royal indoctrination about themselves, where like they've been injected with this self-importance, but we don't know why they are as influential as they treat themselves to be. Uh, another thing to note is that this is set in the 20s, not like the mid-19th century or anything. So this is when these types of um, aristocratic, these dynasties of families, are they're still... They're still there, but modern right. society is moving past that. So it's right. very much like an outdated worldview standard where they still think it matters and that it has this power associated yeah. with it. And it, that's when they were starting to challenge that for the first time, which also in the 20s goes into a whole theme of hedonism, which is Dracula's downfall pretty much. Because he doesn't anticipate it. I think it's interesting, too, because you almost have that sort of uh, Downton Abbey-esque period mm -hmm. of transition between the old world, the old powerhouses, mm -hmm. the old money, you know, in, in that time period where, where fascist Italy is starting to push forward. And and then you have uh, Mario as an explicit Marxist if his hammer and sickle painted on his bedroom. <laughs> subtlety. Yeah, subtlety. Uh, which is, you know, early in the in the early days of the Russian Revolution. And so you have all these modernizing forces and Dracula clearly represents the old world and the old ways of having power. Traditionally, Dracula stories have often been set in the earlier area before all these modernizing tendencies. Mm -hmm. It's treated here in a critical lens in a way that it's normally not. And he, he's kind of a living metaphor for a dying way of life as he's dying. Yeah. I think it's also really interesting how, I mean, and this is like something that flesh for Frankenstein also kind of touched on, but it was like purity and like this illusion of purity. They, um, there's one of the really funny lines at the beginning. Um, it's like one of the innkeepers and he's like, Oh, they must be, uh, you know, pure and upstanding. They have a nice house, <laughs> right. you know, um, which always crack that line cracks me up. And, and, you know, again, it's like it's this constant illusion of like perfection on the outside, but but a crumbling yeah. mansion on the inside. Like they look, you know, like the, the girls are beautiful, but they're not exactly, quote unquote, pure. Yeah. Um, at least most of them. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's it's really interesting, and I like that theme. I mean, it, again, nothing subtle about this movie, no. either movie, but they, they really do kind of play this um, theme and motif, I think, really effectively throughout the entire movie. That, um, that duality of the exterior versus the interior of the mansion is exactly what they're telling you is going to happen at the very first shot sequence of the movie, where where the Count is putting on this basically corpse makeup to make it seem like he has more color, more flair. Yeah, that he's not dead. Yeah, yeah. He, he's betraying his true image even to the audience of the film, where we know what he really looks like, but we don't get to see it for that long because he doesn't want that to be seen. And I think that's also the case with the family. They put this image out there of what they want to be like, and that's what uh, the Count picks up on. And then that's where like they both kind of realize that each other is its own disappointment. Yeah. I don't know that this is true. I haven't read any interviews where it's true. But I feel like Morrissey's almost doing that 
hyper-centrist thing. Because you have, you know, the obvious community predator is Dracula, even though he's sickly and kind of pathetic, right? Mm -hmm. He's the representative of a dying order and a dying way of life, in a way. And then the quote-unquote antagonist, the force that opposes him, is also kind of a villain in Mario, the Marxist, who is straight-up predatory and very, very rapey. And he's just a terrible effing guy. I almost feel like he's doing that. Well, we don't want this, but no, 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 no. Don't go, don't go, don't go that far. Don't go that far. Like kind of centrist, all sidesiness that we see a lot in a, a lot of American cinema, even to this day. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's so, it's so weird and fascinating. And this is like something where, I mean, I know Paul doesn't do a lot of interviews, but if I would get to talk to him, I would be curious about like how he, uh, you know, intended Mario to be as a character because obviously he, he does horrible things, but yet weirdly he takes the moral high ground at the end. Yeah. No, he, he invokes it himself. Yeah, like he has that monologue to the mother about like, you know, she's awful because she let this guy in here. And, you know, the mother is predatory too, but, you know, I feel like everybody's doing their best to survive. I don't know what you guys think, if you think that her character is very black and white, or if you think like they gave her some nuance too. I mean, I feel kind of bad for her too, even though she definitely was not in the right. (laughs) She definitely seems to desire the accumulation of power and more wealth but like she has a crisis of conscience at a certain point like when dracula is going through all these daughters like to see if their their blood is pure so he could you know take them off to transylvania or whatever and uh marry them but then when anton comes over to talk to the mother sitting next to the youngest daughter she is like yeah she's way too young for this so i'm sorry yeah but then she gives this look back over to Anton, like, or, you know, maybe we could make this work, because yeah. this is my last resort, and I do like money. So she's she's not, uh, a, she doesn't have a real aversion to an unnatural exploitation of her daughters, but she has a an apprehension about reserving the most innocent of them all. But the, even then, she has a doubt that she will stay that way that innocent Mm -hmm. yeah that's interesting because yeah um i mean it is like she does like have a line but like you said she almost i mean and, and again kudos to brilliant you know um acting because like you said um you know, you, you can kind of see the wheels turning like, mm, yeah, maybe um, playing the options. Yeah, I think but it's like, hard, too, because in the in the time, you know, you still even among the higher classes, you know, women were kind of desperate and really kind of culturally walked into the success of the family and all these. Uh, there's all these pressures and stuff which could have contributed towards a desperate badness, maybe. But, yeah, you know, so like there's a little bit of contextual sympathy, but also she's kind of a jerk. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's like it's, it's so interesting because, like, again, like this, I know I've said it a hundred times, but they are not subtle with their theming, which I think is fine because the whole movie's just bonkers anyways. But like, I think like the scene like where Mario's like, it's good that you the daughters work out in the field and work and and. Mm-hmm. taste a little bit of the, the the peasant life and you know again it's like they are you know snobbish even though they're poor but again it comes down to this illusion right like everybody's 
pretending to be something they're not. I think like maybe like the dad is the only one that kind of is just straight up real. This might be jumping the gun, but do y'all remember when he said he had like taken stool samples? Oh yeah. No, he was checking up on like, Dracula. No, it was it was urine samples. Urine samples, sorry. Yeah. Um <laughs> as you do. Uh yeah, I mean like again, it's so bonkers and like why, but also I love it. Yeah, like after that he kinda just disappears though. Like he yeah. doesn't like it's all it's Mario's show from there, like once he leaves. It would have been kind of interesting if we did see the Marquis come back to like this inexplicable bloodbath and just like what happened yeah like maybe it might maybe it might have been a little too far but him coming home and like shrugging his shoulders and being like wah wah not not again hopefully just like giving Mario an end that he deserves like maybe he just didn't get anything from the urine sample this is just spitballing but like he's (laughs) he sees Mario with an axe and he just like immediately shoots him and then he's like well that I'll never trust a Marxist again. Yeah, I I feel like it kind of disturbs me that Mario kind of doesn't have any comeuppance. Um, yeah, no. I, again, I would love to talk to Paul and just because, again, I don't know what the creator intent was, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Obviously, we're not supposed to think he's a great guy, right? Like, he does these terrible things. So he's not... I, I know he's not completely framed like the hero, but then they give him like this hero arc anyways. Yeah. Which again, depending on how you feel about it is either really interesting or frustrating. I, I kind of am in the middle. Yeah. Well, it's tough because there's a lot of villainous activity in both of these films that is not met with comeuppance and it's not treated in a valorized way, but it's also not overtly sanctioned or treated as villainous per se either like uh there's a lot of really problematic sexual violence and Mm -hmm. other things that are really not treated casual well i mean they are kind of treated casually but i don't know it's difficult because the tone in those scenes is weird they're both sexualized and not and they're kind of treated casually and a little bit not in context of the scene but not within the scene itself it's just hard to pin down yeah there's a there's a sort of dilemma that is apparent in both and i think uh, for me i think it's a lot more ex- like at its extreme in dracula rather than in mm-hmm. frankenstein but it, it's both it's there in both films my thinking is that w- without really knowing what was going on in paul morrissey's head while like directing these and having written these scenes out is that there must be some sort of like contention that we're supposed to battle with how no person is absolute although we probably won't meet someone who uh is a vampire and um is going through this but it's for the greater good i mean but that's 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 really just a justification no it's not yeah it's it's definitely a stomach turning scene where i need to you know violate this young girl for her own good but it's like oh but that's the sort of rationalization that like predators in power Mm -hmm. always use yeah historically yeah exactly where it's like you have like a tyrant king that's like no don't rise up against me you're so stupid you can't manage the kingdom by yourself or how like you have uh to talk about marxist stuff like you have captains of industry being like i know i only pay you one tenth of a cent an hour in this time period but damn it you're so dumb if it weren't for me you'd have no jobs and they still yeah. use logic like that quote unquote logic thank god i exist 
Yeah, exactly. I know that all of the benefit goes to me and none of it goes to you, but even less would go to you. Don't decapitate me. That's a guillotine reference. Yeah, yeah I mean, but again, it's like, I just, I, I, like, I hate that, like, obviously we're not supposed to like Mario, but then they give him, like, this. I keep coming back to, like, you know, him confronting the mom at the end, and it's like, oh, he gets this, like, moral high ground where it's like, dude, I mean, what? You're the absolute fucking worst, too, yeah. though. I mean, as much as I like the movie, you know, yes, I could, I can 100% like um, agree that there's like some things that I re- really wish they would have maybe reworked or, you know, maybe even just omitted. Because there's definitely like some some violence in there that I don't really think is plot necessary yeah. at all. Is it Stefani Cassini? She was in the scene with him, and like she, he like basically like beats her up. Oh, in the, um, in his bedroom. Mm-hmm. In, yeah yeah and it's like why we don't really need that like is it just it doesn't it doesn't move the plot forward it just it you know further establishes mario and his ideology that's not very sincere you could probably remove that scene and it'd be fine i mean again this comes down to like what paul had intended for that scene to i feel like there was mm-hmm. like if, if if you know there was better ways to like kind of convey that uh you know sentiment without having to uh just be completely horrible to a woman yeah i mean like to to establish that in a male character you really don't have to work that hard like mm-hmm. you can even just mention it and we're like okay got it because that's so it's not it's not something that you really need to show us a lot for us to internalize in fact it's it definitely goes on that way too hard yeah yeah and again it's like it's not that it's not like i'm saying we, we can't have like a nice anti-hero or like somebody that's like questionable in his morals but like ultimately is trying to do the best it's just i mean it further just makes him completely unredeemable and it's like i mean again it's like i know i keep harping on this but like that ending like bugs the shit out of me where he's like trying to talk down to the mom when he's just as bad if not even worse i feel like he is probably the most villainous person i I would even say that like this is probably an example of the villain winning and like taking over and then rewriting the history of the events that just happened to paint this the vampire is obviously the evil creature and i saved everyone as soon as i figured out what was happening just in the way that he's reframing the fact that he's going to rape this underage daughter, like to tell her, we don't have a lot of time. He's looking for virgin blood. And then he just like undresses her with his eyes in this really uncomfortable close up. And then he just does it. And then the mother walks in and then he preaches to her about, this is what's happening. You don't understand. But it's like, it's the preamble to what happens where, um, the events are recounted by the person who quote-unquote survived through the whole thing that has the power to shape the events and sort of say what happened as fact Hmm. yeah that's interesting i mean that's um that's definitely something that like i didn't really consider maybe on like a a conscious level but um I think, like, there's a moment I really like. Um, it's a moment where um, Mario and um, the Count are, like, alone together. I think it's, like, when he's struggling um, to walk yeah. and he's, like, trying to help him. It's almost like a weirdly touching moment where it's, like, they they don't definitely become friends. But, I mean, it feels like there's some kind of 
weird connection, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah, like, they, they talk through, justify their separate ideologies, and, like, it's the closest to, like, an amicable scene between the two, I think. Yeah. But then, mm. uh, whatever respect Mario earns in that scene is immediately lost in the next one because it's right before, like, the bedroom other rape scene for, for Mario's character. But then for Mario, the respect that he gains from Dracula is immediately lost when he climbs up the stairs and then collapses into a seizure. So... Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, it's so it's so weird. Like, it's almost like a mixed message of, like, Flesh for Frankenstein is, is a little more, like upper class bad you know lower class good if not slightly better but mm. like in, in you know blood for dracula it's like you know again they don't make the count like a grotesque yeah. uh you know like creature i mean but on the other hand they treat his character a little more nuanced than they do like the baron but again it, it's conflicting messages it's like is he a parasite just um leeching off of you know other people but then he's also very sympathetic and you definitely are supposed to feel kind of some sympathy for him but then you know you have a lower class person that's kind of framed virtuously but then also is terrible and awful so okay so i read like a couple interviews with paul morrissey and there's there's one on hiddenfilms.com so assuming that this is correct and, and and he's not misquoted, which it doesn't look. I, I wouldn't expect he would be, but mm-hmm. Paul Morrissey's like super Catholic and conservative, and really anti-liberal, and like he has this quote like where he's asked about Mitt Romney. Quote: I think he's wonderful. He doesn't stand a chance. He's a good Christian. He's a fine man. He's a successful man. He has six children, eighteen grandchildren. Here's the fun part. He's hated by the liberal toilet, communist worshiping, Christian hating filth that's behind Mr. and Mrs. Comrade Obama. Is that good enough? Ah, uh, there it is. Ooh. Like, and I know he's being yeah, tongue in cheek there because he's really ornery through this entire interview, and he gets yeah. mad from the get go at the the interviewer calling them Warhol films, and he gets so pissed, and so he's kind of irate, and he doesn't see his own work as political. And he doesn't take them that seriously, but he himself is legitimately very conservative and whatever. So I think like his biases infest the films, but that may not be his Mm -hmm. intent. So that's why the politics are weird. So, okay. So so that's interesting. He doesn't take them that seriously. It seems like, and he doesn't seem like unless he's lying, like he's trying to make them political, but his ideals are so entrenched. And so I'll say it backwards. That um, yeah. that they infect how he thinks of this the, the story. I was talking to a filmmaker. I don't know. I won't say his name because I don't know if he wants me to say. But like we were talking about, this is a horror, pretty prominent horror director, and we were talking about Paul's work and how it's so bizarre because like, he, by all accounts, is like pretty conservative. Yet these movies are so like envelope pushing like i mean even like today yeah, they're like libertine films yeah in terms like, of like what's in there yeah. like even today I, I still find stuff like you know like the the gallbladder scene just so unsettling or like the scene where the young girl gets deflowered and then he like laps up the blood from that i mean yeah yeah and, and then you have somebody that's like a conservative that comes up with that 
I mean, it's... Well, I feel like it might be one of those cases, and this is me, like, putting two and two together, so, of course, you know, don't... I could totally be just wrong, but it feels like it's one of those slippery slope type things that conservatives like to attempt to do, where it's like, fine, you like this? This is more... Have more. Have some more. Have some more. Until it's bad. But then, in, in doing so, they end up projecting the things that they truly identify with, but putting them onto a canvas where I think was in the case, especially in Dracula, where uh, they have this Marxist character and like this Marxist character is evil and this is what he thinks versus what he does. And like what he thinks is pretty much uh, it goes in line with that quote that you just read, Jeff. About, yeah. uh, he just can't seem to keep predatory political um, comments out of like his filter like it just goes straight in right 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 so like this this person he's painting as the enemy might really just be a mirror allegory for whatever was going on in his head at the time right because i mean like like if in you know the early 70s obviously we just had like the major cultural eruptions of 68 Mm -hmm. and the late 60s in general and so there was this rampant influx of like free love and like pro communist you know, uh, peoples and advocates and intellectuals, and it's in film, a lot of film of the yeah, era. this whole shift post-Vietnam. Exactly, and we had the post-Vietnam uh, era. And then if you're conservative by, like, like staunchly conservative, you think of that as, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's abhorrent, you know? Yeah, and I wonder how much of that uh, connects over to Warhol. Like, I don't know his political leanings at all, but... I, I would yeah, have to hazard a guess that it's a little bit more to the left of Morrissey's at the time, specifically. Yeah, I think he liked to d- describe himself as, like, apolitical, but he was, you know, his life was leftist in a in a lot of ways. Like, quirky, artsy. Uh, this was a chiller, and they had, um, uh, Paul was there. So he was supposed to be there for the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, like, three-day weekend. And so Paul was there, and I met Udo at a different time. Um but uh, Stefani Cassini was also there. So it was her and Paul and they were doing like a signing. And uh, so I had uh, this original poster for Blood for Dracula that Udo had signed. And I was like so excited. I like to meet, you know, get Paul to sign it and Stefani. And and, um, so when I got in line, like one of the staff member, like, like rushed up to me and she's like, "Uh, we're just letting everybody know that if you have something with the name Andy Warhol on it, he will scratch it out. And it's been upsetting some people. So just, you know, fair warning. And I was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) So like, I I still wanted my poster signed. So like he kind of grumbled about it and he crossed Andy's name and signed it. And then, so he like signed it twice then actually. He like signed it and then he like crossed um, Andy's name out at the top of the title and, and signed his own. And then I had Stefani sign it. And uh, but yeah, it was it was wild. Like he um, he actually even bailed on the convention early. Like, I don't think he even spent two days there. I think he just was kind of over it. But I did get to attend his like he did a like a Q&A. And again, it was like real quick. Um, I think maybe like an hour tops. And I, I just I, I hope somebody recorded that because that would be really interesting. Um, but I know one of the weird things that came out was I think he's um, says he's like a really big fan of um, 
Pawn Stars. <laughs> All right. Okay. I, I th- it was like Pawn Stars or like um, it was like one of those like reality shows that he. But like Pawn Stars kind of picks uh, sticks out in my mind as uh, something he said he really enjoys, which I think is kind of hilarious. He's uh, a real history buff. You know what? Okay. Yeah. All right. And then when I met Udo, so I met him. Um, so it was uh, when the Halloween remake came out, like that, like that exact summer. They got the whole cast together to like promote that movie. And so you know, I had like a couple like posters, and then of course the Blood for Dracula one. And so like at the time, I had like a mohawk, but I had it kind of slicked back. Mm-hmm. And like the first thing he said to me is like, "Oh, I love your hair," <laughs> and I was like. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but it was like, like that was like kind of cool. Like I was like, Ooh, that was great. Um, well, so apparently he had quite, I, I'll just, I won't say what, because I don't know specifically, but I had heard that he had quite the uh, ruckus weekend that weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the hotel. Yeah. Um, he seems like a ruckus uh, person. Uh, but I mean, again, uh, hearsay. I just heard some stories. I won't say what, though. But um, apparently he had a good time. Well, you know what? Good for him. If I want anyone to have a good time. But he was really nice. I mean, he was um, uh, he seemed very nice to everybody that he met and took took time to like talk about the movies. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I, I think it's kind of interesting, too, because like part of the reason, I guess, I guess thinking about all these things in context of who the director is, like, I feel like he probably isn't trying to explicitly proselytize a perspective per se. But I think that it is so strong to him that it just kind of and that's probably part of the reason why there's so much dark hyper sexuality in it. And all these other facets where it just, it was in the context and he, he just remembers it with horror and that's just what comes out. Yeah, like, obviously I don't think that, like, he endorses necessarily any of these, like, ideologies or, like, some of the things happening in the movie that are a little more, you know, revolting. But, like, yeah. I, um, I don't want to speak for, you know, Paul because I don't know what exactly his intent was, but it sounds like from, like, the interview um, snippet that mm-hmm. you found that it's, like, you know, uh, I think some of it was maybe just, uh, you know, meant to poke and prod a little bit without maybe necessarily, like, a deeper... I mean, there's definitely some some um, conscious, deeper themes to it, but I think, like, some of it might have just be, like, have been just wanting to push the envelope a little bit and make it yeah. outrageous without necessarily needing a, a, a super strong reason, per se, for some things. Yeah, and that, and that's the thing. And this is me, of course, being... I'm trying to be very charitable. <laughs> yeah. But but then, like, in looking at these films retrospectively, um, I, I think I should probably note here that there's a couple different physical versions of the films, like DVD releases specifically, but one of them is more notably uh, the Criterion Collection, who put it out of both uh, Flesh and Blood, respectively, in their mm-hmm. own separate editions. While they did that back in, like mid-90s, like 1996 or 7 or something like that. Um, now, and Criterion has sort of a, uh, almost like a revered pinnacle of like home media. They have this sort of pedigree where like if a film gets a Criterion collection release, it's something that's like a cornerstone of cinema and like um, right. something that's important to the history of how film uh, was made, viewed, consumed. I, I'm just wondering how... Um, 
they uh, were approaching Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula as uh, submitting it as such, as like important, influential, probably. But were they positing these as cornerstones of cinema? Um, I mean, I, I honestly think like that's um, as much as like Paul would probably hate to hear this. I mean, it's probably by virtue of it coming from you know Warhol's factory, and I mean, I know mm-hmm. Warhol didn't necessarily direct these; he just was uh, in a producer capacity, yeah. and I guess I guess lent his name to sell them. But you know, again, I mean, I think that's probably why there's so much um, interest in him because of um, the interest in Andy and his films. Um, again, you know, I, I am well aware that Andy didn't actually direct these. Yeah. Um, he probably didn't have any, probably really have any input except for just funding them. But yeah, it sort of like amplified it, really. Yeah, so I mean, right. I I have to wonder if like that didn't play a big part in Criterion um, deciding to um, do these uh, films. Yeah, I, I'd be very surprised if it wasn't part of that. I also think that that part of the reason these might have been kind of popularly embraced at the time in, in their reputation has to do with both that and ironically how elevated for its day like the sexuality and some of the mm-hmm. raw aspects were and in that era that's something that's still envelope pushing but in a in a way where media is catching up to where culture yeah. was so even if he hated it and was trying to be like fine you want more of this you want more of this well they did <laughs> and like they almost seem to want to fit in with like the 42nd street grindhouse um like gratuitousness but like there's a, such a slant to it that I, I don't know what it is. I mean, like we've we've already gone over that, but um, just how it just sticks out in a in a weird way, and just like it achieves almost the opposite effect of being sexy or like being transgressive. Where like the the people that are portrayed in it are the complete opposite of their heroic counterparts. There's no real like. I mean, I think um, this is this goes more for Blood for Dracula, where like there's really no good or bad person i mean there's definitely like shades of um good or okay or or awful like mario and like some like the things he does but yeah i mean it doesn't doesn't really take a stance um which i don't necessarily need that in a film like i like i i'm fine with some ambiguity i mean um like with an anti-hero and everything it's just interesting to me though because i feel like there's a difference between a film that is intentionally decidedly ambiguous on purpose and a film that's ambiguous because it's just messy yeah Yeah. i i would probably guess that it's probably the latter because um when i was watching dracula early on like there's a scene where they just straight up forget that vampires can't be in the sunlight and morrissey actually brings this up like they were shooting and then the crew was like wait why is he in the sunlight and he's like oh yeah I, i forgot about that well let's just have udo hold the hat up against the sun like he still doesn't like it so it was just he's very much winging it oh yeah yeah they don't know anything about vampire well, mythos at all no there's there's another piece too where like he has this long monologue where he's like uh he's like let me go drek is like let me go home and die in peace what is good to have tea when i can't have the yeah. right vegetable go with it i guess i have to eat the rest of the romanian lettuce with lemon or oil. They put so much oil on everything here. Dracula doesn't need yeah. to eat food. People are food. <laughs> and then, like, when he gets into his room in the uh, Italian mansion, 
uh, he has this, like, crosses. I hate crosses. Get this shit out of here. And he just, he picks it up and he just puts it in a drawer. Like, no. Yeah, like, he doesn't just dislike yeah. it. It's not, like, an aesthetic it's problem. Like, damn it. <laughs> like, ugh, right angles. I'm so over right angles. Didn't they read my my notes, my my requirements? Um, I I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't all just take a second to talk about the blood vomit scene. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> what the actual fuck? I mean, it's like one of the most... It's not really gross, but it's just... It's so unapologetically in your face. Like, we're, we're, we're doing this. We're going with it. Go with it. You know, we're going to have him, yeah. like, vomit blood for, like, uh, a minute or two straight. Like... Yeah, I think it was mainly just to show how much he had ingested of the blood. But then, it, like, <laughs> I think it was Udo's choice to, oh, yeah. to just continue that because he thought it was fun you're talking about the scene where he's like yeah. over the bathtub and basically <laughs> yeah. just like like exorcist spasming blood out of his face hole yeah uh that was my favorite dance number of 1973 that was beautifully <laughs> no like I, I thought it was like uh, it was it was interesting because the thing that's interesting too is like the, the food thing got me because the whole shtick with vampires is sometimes they pretend to eat because but they can't and sometimes it even makes them sick, depending on who's telling the mythos. But like, they're just like, why? Okay, I don't know. Maybe that's why you're dying, Dracula. You've been eating human food. I mean, you yeah. know, again, it's like these weird monologues that, like, like they don't serve, really serve any purpose. But I kind of love them, anyways. No, it's fun. It's part of the fun. It is. It's just, but also like, as a someone that always digs, thinks too much about a mythos. It's like, okay. I will say that Blood for Dracula is my favorite Italian neorealist film of the period. <laughs> um, starring the inimitable Vittorio De Sica in a key role oh, in one I... of his final roles as an actor, as a performer. I love him in this. Like when he's doing like the like the uh, wine tasting of his of, of yeah. Dracula's name. Like that is everything for to mm-hmm. me. I love that scene. No, like I'm actually like genuinely a big De Sica fan. Like mm-hmm. Uh, show me some Umberto D or some Bicycle Thieves. Yeah. When his name came up in the the opening credits, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be fun. But like, um, I would argue he needed to be in a little bit more of it. Uh, but the the scenes yeah. that he's in are mm-hmm. just completely uh, astounding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do we want to mention the other director commentary or or cameo that uh, definitely uh, has not aged yeah. well? No, I feel like we can just mention who the controversial cameo is, but then otherwise, I think that we pretty much tread yeah. pretty deeply. Yeah. It rhymes with Broman Brolansky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know even what I want to say about it. So, I I would say these, these two are very intriguing iterations of these, um, I guess at this point, they're traditional stories, but like there's something about them that really really warrants and like uh rewards context and i think that um Mm -hmm. no one should have to sort of jump into this without like with that context being erased i i would recommend these only on the basis that uh you are either ready for anything or if it's ever provided at some point like some sort of examination on the climate of how, when, why these films were released, and uh, just any sort of like inner workings of intention. Because I think intention is the most mm-hmm. important aspect of these. And even now, like as we're talking about this, 
it's not clear because I think Morrissey, of all people, he's withholding of some very important information that I think he's probably never going to reveal about what the real intent for this was, even if it was just just a retelling of these monster movies. Anyone can tell mm-hmm. there's there's much more than that going on. But that being said, there's something about the the strange two-dimensional nature of morality that happens in both of these that they're definitely worth examination. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's something ineffable about it where mostly like the the sexual politics specifically are the most upsetting. And I think that's where uh, a lot of people run into a wall and that's where we need that intent that information of surrounding why mm-hmm. things are the way that they are it might yeah. just be yeah something uh that was not thought of as important at the time and no one will go back and clarify i don't know but that being said these are certainly oddities that uh need to be examined because there's something that obviously sparks a discussion that uh, I think everyone mm-hmm. needs to have. You know, I would um, definitely kind of echo that. I think that thematically it's interesting, but like um, character-wise, it's character of motivation-wise, it starts to get um, a little uh, muddled. And, you know, again, I would recommend these movies, but I would also recommend it with like a warning if you're not interested in anything that's a little more... Um, I don't know if I want to say extreme, but like, yeah, I guess extreme would probably be a good good word. Like a little more like out there or uh, again, there's some um, definitely some moments that are very problematic. Um, you know, if that stuff disturbs you, I would say don't watch it. But, you know, it's not. Uh, and, and again, I, I like it just because it's so weird and interesting. And I think it does have a lot to say, even though sometimes I don't think that it knows exactly what it wants to say. And if you were to ask him, sometimes he would tell you that it doesn't try and say anything. And that's a lie. Yeah, and because it definitely is like there's definitely I mean, there's there's certainly a brain behind it. Yeah, there's a perspective, you know, for sure. Yeah, it's just that like I, I, you know, and Andre said this too, it's, it's, it doesn't really quite get there where I think it, you know, I feel like there's some, some context that we're, we're missing, but I mean, again, they're, they're just really weird, offbeat, uh, surreal movies. I mean, if you can get down with like movie that has, um, just a whole other different weird tone and you know if you can embrace it i think that you know you would probably like these um if not they, they're probably maybe not for you <laughs> but you know they're they're definitely interesting i mean they're they they're definitely not boring for sure mm-hmm. yeah and i would say for me it's it's uh it's an interesting case of so you have like a notorious libertine producing a film by a staunch producer that comes to hate him and in this context of one of the most tumultuous times in america in its era and so there's a larger than life aspect in the films and the themes are all over the place and it's just a it's an interesting thing to me because it makes it a harder read uh, a harder set of films to read, right? But it's definitely worth interrogating. It's definitely important in its era. It's some of the most unusual takes on 
the Frankenstein or the Dracula mythoses that you'll find in cinema that actually has a reach that you don't have to really struggle to find, even though it's a slight struggle because they need to they need to do a, a really good high quality Blu-ray. But ultimately, I think that they're they're worth looking into if you know, like like Andre said, if you know what you're in store for and you have a grasp of the context and of the people behind it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't. It's just so complicated to pin it down that I don't really have like a big wrap up, but uh, but it's worth your time, and um, so there you go. Yeah. Now, real quick, just question um, for for both of you: Would you watch either either one or both again? You know, I would actually. I would revisit Flesh for Frankenstein for sure, um, and I remember earlier. Uh, I think Jeff was saying that like no one really gets any comeuppance. Uh, but I remember in Frankenstein, actually everyone, well, the Baron actually does get some sort of comeuppance. Or like, we get mm-hmm. that that glamour 3D shot, which they, they did, yeah. where he gets impaled by this super long like pike or something like that. I don't know even where it came from. But he, he receives the type of penetration that he's giving of his own accord, mm-hmm. but only this time he's on the receiving end which he comprehends much too late that he cannot handle. He dies shortly thereafter. He might even have a realization moment that for a character like his always comes much too late. Yeah, yeah, it happens. And the most innocent uh, (laughs) characters, the kids, get to forge their own destiny, which at at this stage is following in their father's footsteps. But I Mm -hmm. am actually more curious to see how they will develop later on in life but i'm sure we'll never get that my brain is sort of just like creating this brother sister it's like another brother sister relationship that could be as problematic as flesh for frankensteins or it could be uh going in the other direction because they knew how they were brought up also i'll add to that i think Zack snyder should direct the sequel to this 100 percent. yeah i want a six hour cut okay and so and for uh will i revisit this um no no explanation just kidding no um yeah that's fair i wanted to end it that way but i don't know you know probably honestly probably not yeah uh i mean mostly just predominantly because the writing is bad in a lot of it and mostly just that <laughs> yeah I mean, you know, okay. that's, that's fair too <laughs> i mean see i like and i'm not saying that your point is your point is 100 percent valid i would only just say i i kind of don't mind the sometimes um bad dialogue and writing just because it for me, it, it kind of like fits in this weird kind of other reality. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's like definitely you can tell that it was um, written on the on the fly, right? Yeah, because right. I mean, it's not that I didn't enjoy myself watching it because I watched I, I enjoyed watching both, but I also feel like I did that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. At that, I'm gonna wrap up the episode. Um, and uh, but it has been a true pleasure gentlemen folks at home uh you can find flesh for frankenstein on youtube i won't post a link because i don't want it to be off youtube yeah but you can find it hopefully it's still there by the by the time this episode is up it is as of this morning so that's so far so good um when we record but at that um 
uh, gentlemen, uh, just tell the folks at home where they can find you. So you can find me on Twitter at Strange Cinema 65. And uh, you can find my book, The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema, on Amazon. Uh, you can also find me on Letterboxd. Uh, my username is Kubrick655321. I live on Twitter, so you can find me there uh, by going by the name of Demon Disc Trademark. I'm also pretty active on the Letterboxd, so um, you can find me on Letterboxd under the handle Hamburger Harry, and I put up everything that I watch and rewatch, and I usually have something to say about it. So mm-hmm. those are my two outlets. Fantastic. Uh, thank you both much. And uh, for me, if you you found this, you can probably find me, but you can find me on Twitter at Real Jeff Ewing, R-E-E-L, Jeff Ewing, like my name. I am doing Letterbox more these days, but generally I just psychically project my reviews to your brain. So <laughs> that wraps our show. And it's been a true pleasure. Everyone have a great safe day and avoid mad scientists and strange counts traveling across Europe. And probably devout Catholics too. Oh yeah, because whether or not you <laughs> like them, they might not like you. Once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening. From the dawn of record human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization. The need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive. (laughs) 